Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I I have to be quite honest with you. This is not anything I was ever taught to pay attention to. So hang on, hang on. You go out and have dinner at restaurants, right? Yeah. And you pick up the tableware and you say to yourself, hmm, this is nice or it's not nice, right? I guess so. So I've been looking at tableware lately. Anytime I have the opportunity to go out to eat or go to dinner at someone's house, and I've been turning over my forks and spoons and knives, looking for a word engraved in the back of the handle, Oneida. I usually say that, um, that our product is kind of like jewelry for the table. Paul Gebhardt is the creative director and senior vice president of design at the Oneida Group, which is by far the oldest flatware manufacturer based in the United States. The Oneida brand has been making its jewelry for the table since the mid-1800s. It's helped define the setting of the American table, which, Paul says, has been the setting for the American family. I'm I'm not a family expert, but what I do know is that people still fall in love. And when they fall in love, they set up a home together, typically. And when they do that, they make some decisions about who they are and, you know, what their furniture is going to look like, what their kitchen is going to look like, how they're going to live their life together. And that's the point that, that they would encounter our brand. Because Oneida is all about family, really and truly, especially if you know the full story of Oneida from its very origin. And... When did you first hear about your great-great-grandfather? So if you're referring to John Humphrey Noyes, somebody uh, tuned you into the fact that I was uh, family? Yeah. I mean, did you, like, was there a moment when someone sat you down and told you the whole history or? Oh, yeah. You know, I don't have, I don't recall really a point where, oh, wow, I didn't quite realize what went on here um, in terms of utopian experiment. Yeah, it's pretty much always been there. This is Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed. This first season is called Utopian. It's about a perpetual search for a perfect place, which, according to the etymological roots of the very word utopia, does not, in fact, exist. I'm your host, Avery Truffleman. Come back in time with me to 1832, where we meet Paul Gebhardt's great-great-grandfather, John Humphrey Noyes, a man who would go on to be the leader of a religious commune with over 300 followers and would later flee that commune after a warrant was put out for him. But way before all that, Noyes was a young seminary student in his early 20s, and he was an awkward young man. He was you know, just very, very socially anxious and always thought people were laughing at him, and he felt very sort of ugly. This is Ellen Wayland-Smith. She wrote the book Oneida, From Free Love Utopia to the Well-Set Table. And the story of Oneida starts with John Humphrey Noyes. 
every time he tried to approach a girl at a party or a dance, he would, you know, blush crimson and uh, go away, sort of skulk away defeated and feeling embarrassed. Noyes had converted to Christianity when he was 20. But rather than being a source of comfort in his ungainly youth, his religion was totally torture. My trouble for some days past has been this. I fear I think too much about the rewards of heaven. I seem to indulge an unhallowed ambition to stand eminent in the ranks of heaven. That's an excerpt of Noyes' diary from July 29, 1832. So Noyes thought constantly about the story of the Garden of Eden, and he felt it like a personal loss. He grieved it. He was overcome with shame about living in this world of sin, especially because he was constantly overwhelmed and ashamed by his own sexual desires. He was a very kind of carnal and lusty person by all accounts. He had this sort of crippling sense of guilt and paralysis. I have been wishing today I could devise some new way of sanctification, some patent, some specific for sin, whereby the curse should be exterminated once for all. Noise, this tortured, awkward young man, takes his angst and enrolls in the Yale Theological Seminary. And there, in New Haven, he learns about this strain of Christianity called perfectionism. Perfectionism preached that, yes, one should choose not to sin, but goodness is less about the sum of small actions and more about who you are in your nature. Basically, if you have a purity of heart and your aim is true, sinlessness is possible on earth. I mean, it's so funny because it seems to me, maybe I'm misinterpreting this, that perfectionism is just like, as long as you have pure intentions and you want to do the right thing and you feel like Jesus is with you, you can kind of do whatever you want and you will be right. Is that fair? At at its most extreme, yes, it's the idea that God created a perfect universe. Therefore, nothing can be bad. Anything that I do or think or say cannot be bad because in God's universe, everything's good. Perfectionism was like a cold drink of water to noise. This was a man who felt the weight of sin so deeply, he would wake up feeling sick. And he just, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't deal with this feeling of always being sort of impure, always having this albatross of guilt around his neck. And so this gave him a way out. Actually, a lot of people wanted this same out. There was a religious revival movement going on at the turn of the 19th century, Thousands of Protestants were ditching the Calvinist and Puritan ideals that kept them bogged down under the weight of original sin. They were all craving a new relationship to God, just like Noyes. So riding this wave, Noyes starts spreading the idea, mostly through writing, that sinlessness is possible on earth. It was radical, and it was controversial. Ellen Wayland Smith writes that Noyes became sort of an official spokesperson for New Haven perfectionism which is how Noyes meets his wife, Harriet. It's also how Noyes meets a follower named Mary Cragen. Your essay on faith was put into my hands. This was a new and startling idea, but the Lord showed me that this was faith. Mary Cragen wrote this to John Humphrey Noyes when she converted to his brand of perfectionism in 1839. And when Mary Cragen converted, her husband, George Cragen, was fired from his job just for this association with noise. Mary reports this news with delight. Bless the Lord. 
On the 1st of December, he will be without money and without business. How this rejoices me. Mary was relieved to be free of these burdens. Material things, Noyes preached, distract people from their closeness to God. The Yale Theological Seminary was not as enthralled by Noyes' teachings as Mary Cragen, and in fact, Yale expelled Noyes and revoked his preaching license. But that didn't stop him from spreading his beliefs. He relocated to Putney, Vermont. Mary Cragen and her unemployed husband, George, and their son followed him. In Vermont, Noyes continued collecting followers. By March 1843, they were a group of 35. And all the while, Noyes was rounding out his perfectionist beliefs with new philosophies. Like, what is this sex battery theory that he had? Yeah, it's really weird. Sex battery, like electrical battery. Noyes was always trying to connect his religious teachings to the science of the times. You know, science at the time was sort of coming to grips with electricity and trying to understand how it worked. Noyes started to think of Christ as an invisible energy, a battery of nervous power that pulsated through the human body. In a absolutely stunning reversal of his previous shame around sexual desire, Noyes came to view the sexual organs as the medium of noblest worship of God. He believed sex was more than a personal experience between two married people. It was a way to meet God. It was the ultimate recharge, a charge so powerful and electrifying, it actually had the potential to stave off death. If you could rid yourself of all your attachments and your selfishness and sort of connect equally with all other humans, you would um, get this sort of clean circuitry going that would therefore do away with all illness and all sickness and eventually death. And sex was a, was a part of this. And this was all within the confines of holy marriage between two married people. Until the spring of 1846, when George Cragen starts falling in love with Noyes' wife, Harriet. And then Harriet admits she's attracted to George. And then Noyes admits that he's attracted to George's wife, Mary. And then Mary's attracted to Noyes, too. Basically, it turns out these two couples were all hot for each other. And it was a relief for them just to be able to admit it. As Mary Cragen recounted it, The effect was most refreshing to our spirits. We have formed a circle which it is not easy for the devil to break. We find this evidence that our love is of God. And they agreed to leave it at that. That they were all into each other, but they wouldn't act on it. Except one day, Noyes and Mary Cragen take a walk. A long walk. By the end, they're tired. And they sit down together. And suddenly, they're overcome with desire. Mrs. Cragen distinctly gave me to understand that she was ready for the full consummation. I said, no, I'm going home to report what we've done. It's kind of hot. My wife promptly and entirely sanctioned our proceeding. They all reckon, if sex is a battery that helps you live forever, then more of it is good. The upshot of the conference was that we gave each other full liberty all round, and so entered into complex marriage in the quartet form. Complex marriage. The idea that this foursome would be engaged with each other, strictly heterosexually, but all members would be equal to each other and God. They would discuss their relationship communally with joint decision-making and constant reflection, although most of their interactions were deferring to and driven by John Humphrey Noyes. 
The complex marriage then extended to include more couples, eventually making 10 people in total. Although they kept it a secret at first, even from the rest of Noise's followers, as you can imagine, word of this 10-person couple eventually leaks to the town of Putney. And it is absolutely scandalous. Adultery is illegal in the 1840s, and arrest warrants are issued. And so the Noise, Cragens, Leonards, Millers, Skinners skip town, and they move to upstate New York, to a town called Oneida. Noise and his followers land in Oneida, New York, in 1848. By the end of their first year there, they had amassed 84 members in their complex marriage. And Noise wanted everyone under one roof. So they set to work, building a home suitable for a growing, complex community. This is the apartment I will take you to, is the last apartment that uh, is where we walk through someone else's because they were all related, so it didn't really matter. The mansion house is a 93,000-square-foot building, Victorian and Second Empire style. In other words, it looks like a Northeast boarding school. And from 1848 to today, actually, the mansion house has been home to the Oneida commune and its residents, like Kate Whalen smith And so the books you see there and some of the sculpture and even some of the artwork and the couch and the this and the that, you know, we just left it in place. Kate Whalen smith showed producer Megan Kinane around the mansion. And Kate says a lot of the decor is relatively unchanged from 1848, which is to say you'd never know there's anything religious about the place. No iconography, no Christian symbols, and so on. And that, is, that sort of tells it all, you know. We have, we have reached the promised land, <laughs> and so there's no need for crosses and other sorts of reminders and so on. All we have to do is get ourselves to be sinless, get ourselves to be selfless. After the move from Vermont, the community kept growing. By 1850, 172 people had joined. By 1851, 208 people were united in the churning pairings of complex marriage. And this was not just willy-nilly free love. They were all bound to each other equally as a way to be bound to God. You had to love impartially, and you couldn't become what they called sticky love. This term, sticky love, was used when someone would get too attached or possessive, even to their own legal spouse, or to objects. Like Kate heard of someone in the community who was a talented violinist. And he got sticky with his violin. He took too much pleasure in his ability to play the violin, and they would take the violin from him. These jealous or over-invested connections were supposed to cool off so that everyone could enjoy each other in an even-keeled, egalitarian way. And they were definitely supposed to enjoy sex, both men and women, in a huge departure from typical norms of the time. In Oneida, the point of sex wasn't procreation. Noise was actually an early advocate of birth control, and he believed that women and men could both find pleasure equally, and that men and women could also work side by side equally. Women in the 1830s, 40s married into a 
family. And I think that was far uh, looking, that the women should not be treated that way. They should be much more equal. Here in the Oneida community, women weren't confined to the home. As evidence of their freedom from bourgeois domestic confines, the women wore their hair in a short bob, parted severely at the center. And they wore bloomers under their skirts, which was a really wild look at the time. And the women's roles were wildly unconventional. Along with the men, the women of Oneida were free to build and teach and make money in all their various business ventures. They always thought, whatever we can do to make money in the world that will help us fund our spiritual project is good. And so from the beginning, they were always in business, doing a business of of some sort. The commune's first business venture was selling animal traps. One of their members was famous for his metal traps, which he cooled in oil as opposed to water, so they never cracked in cold temperatures. Selling these traps was how they raised the money to build the mansion house. But eventually, commune members, men and women, also made silk thread, planted mulberry bushes, and canned fruit. And then they took over an old factory and became metal benders, making flatware, like forks and knives and spoons. The original idea was that all the work was done, you know, on a sort of rotating basis by the members of the community. The profits were all shared collectively, and the work was done voluntarily, upholding an ideal of free labor, as the community called it, which was more pure than work done for pay. But at their height, they were only about 250 people ever at Oneida, and they just couldn't keep up with the work, so they began hiring local people to um, work in the factories. Oneida's commercial success started to chafe against their ideals of free labor and self-sufficiency. But their collective businesses were growing. As the community depended more and more on the outside world, for both workers and consumers, they knew they needed to temper their strange reputation. They were caught between wanting to sort of play the part of upstanding citizens and, you know, pursuing their own spiritual ends. And one of their most unpopular spiritual ends was a dark side of Noyes' birth control advocacy. Essentially, Noyes started a eugenics program in 1869, where he selected rotating pairings of his most spiritual followers from his flock and decided when they should have children. Despite all their cooperative ideals, this program was a reminder that Noyes is very much in control and that his decisions dictate the fate of the whole community. He was actively trying to breed a new generation that would be 100% spiritually sound. In theory, at least, the idea was that if you breed carefully, you will um, sort of advance God's plan towards humans who um, can live forever. Ellen writes that, in total, 62 children are born during this eugenics program. Ten were fathered by noise. A new wing is added to the mansion to house them all. And of course, this makes waves in the town. So in a sort of PR campaign, to prove that Oneida is a thriving, harmless business, the community hosted outsiders in the mansion for performances and for receptions of strawberries and cream on their immaculately maintained lawn. But they didn't realize that the biggest threat was coming from inside the house. So the the generation of Noise's children... They, they began to sort of have more contact with the outside world, um, again, in keeping with their idea that they were sort of living in the world but not of it. That spiritually sound generation had a hard time growing up in the community. 
because sticky love was also supposed to be avoided between parents and children. Mothers were instructed to be coolly detached from their children and not to show them preferential treatment. And worst of all, Noyes became insistent that he would be the one to sexually initiate the young women of the group. More and more, this next generation felt like outsiders. Well, what didn't work is it's what always seems to happen. The leader cannot give up the leadership and does not prepare a new generation. Noyes was losing control of his flock. And when he hears there's a warrant out for his arrest for statutory rape, he flees to Canada. And then Oneida disbands. Kind of. Well, it turns into something else. It goes corporate. That's after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So John Humphrey Noyes, the founder of this whole supposed utopia, had abandoned his creation. And the community he left behind was terrified of what would come next. The stakes for them were really high. They had built their whole lives here in Oneida. They had jobs. They had the factory. If there hadn't been manufacturer, they all would have moved away. To save face and to save the company— and because some of the younger generation craved traditional nuclear family units, they turn to monogamy. Their dining room becomes a cafeteria. Members are given shares of stock in the Oneida Community Limited, depending on how much money they contributed to the community when they joined and how long they'd been there. And the mansion house gets divvied up. They sort of jerry-rigged into apartments once they went back to monogamy and monogamous families. And the families, a lot of the families continued to live there. As community members pair off, there are winners and losers. Because now that they were dismantling this utopia they had built, women lost the power and autonomy they had once enjoyed. They were going to be dependent on husbands again. It became a romantic game of musical chairs, where the women who did marry married men who were now the executives and managers of Oneida Limited. It was turned into a joint stock company, still run by the community, and still deferring to Noyes himself, even after his death in 1886. They actually held spiritualist seances to try to channel Noyes' spirit to see what they should do when they had to make big business decisions. As for the women who didn't get husbands and the turn to monogamy, they were suddenly single mothers. According to Ellen Wayland Smith, one of John Humphrey Noyes' sons was nine years old when the community broke up. His mother ended up with three children from three different fathers and no one to help her out. And so she was actually in a 
pretty financially precarious position at the breakup. And she had to, you know, I think she she sold encyclopedias door to door. She did whatever work she could. Her son, by John Humphrey Noyes, was named Pierpont. And he had grown up somewhat distant and outcast from this new iteration of the Oneida community. And from his vantage point, he could see that things weren't going well. The company at this point, Oneida Limited, was um, sort of falling on hard times. It was not being terribly well run. Um, And Pierpont saw it about to founder. And so he decided to sort of swoop in and try to rescue it. Determined to save this company from its management strategy, which, again, was seances, Pierpont Noyes joined the Oneida Board of Directors in 1894, when he was in his early 20s. By the time he was 30, he was essentially in control of the company, and he turned Oneida Limited into a bona fide brand. He did this in two ways. First, he came up with a new product, a very aspirational American product. It was flatware that looked expensive, but wasn't. It was just some cheap metal dipped with an extra thick layer of silver. And so he did that in conjunction with um, eye-catching design elements so that it wasn't just boring flatware. And he was able to, through a combination of appealing to this middle of the market with less money, was able to to really sort of capture a, a big market share. Pierpont's second innovation was advertising. He increased the company's promotion budget sixfold, from $5,000 to $30,000 per year. They were sort of ahead of the curve in terms of these ads that sold the idea of something rather than the thing itself. In selling this silverware, Oneida was mostly selling images of women. Beautiful, giddy women. And um, what Oneida did was just picture these beautiful girls sort of staring into chests of silver or looking longingly at a fork. It sold the comforts of domesticity and also the pleasures of little luxuries like jewelry for your table. And then silverware just became this thing that was a badge of middle-class belonging, right, that women wanted in order to show that they had a proper household and that they could entertain properly. And they were very canny about capitalizing on that fear or desire to aspire to middle-class status. Oneida the company came to embody the values that Oneida the community had once railed against. Materialism, possessiveness, the traditional family unit, female domesticity. And some people think that was sort of the fulfillment, that John Humphrey Noyes started this utopia, which essentially failed, I think we'd have to say, although 30 years is a long run. And uh, it, then it came to uh, absolute fruition in the second utopia. The second utopia, meaning Oneida's corporate revival. Because Pierpont fancied the company would embody a sort of noble capitalism, in which no one would be too rich or too poor, and it would be a community for all who work there. Essentially, Pierpont wanted to make a kind of normative, secular, monogamous reincarnation of what John Humphrey Noyes believed. You know, without the eugenics or complex marriage. So is it fair to say that Oneida kind of transitioned from a commune to the ultimate company town? Yeah, that was the idea behind how they wanted to run the company, was that the workers... Um, would be partners in the silverware company. It became a pretty decent company in a somewhat typical paternalistic mid-century way. 
You know, they gave workers money to buy houses. They paid into the school system so workers' kids could go to school. They sponsored community clubs, that kind of thing. And as Oneida Limited became more and more successful, its origin story became a bit of a dark secret. They thought that was nobody's business but theirs. Um, And I think they saw it as uh, a real threat to the viability of their, their brand. And so, in 1947, the descendants of the Oneida community gathered up records of their parents' and grandparents' utopian experiment and burned them in a giant bonfire. Were you met with any criticism for writing this extremely, you know, blunt sort of tell-all book? Yeah, I, I couldn't have written it 20 years ago or even 10 years ago um, because I just wouldn't have wanted to deal with the blowback. In case you were wondering, yes, Kate Whalen-Smith, who lives at the Oneida House, and Ellen Whalen-Smith, the author of Oneida's History, are related. Kate is Ellen's mom. And Ellen's late father, Giles Whalen-Smith, was a descendant of the community. And they're very upfront about this history. It was a, a brave experiment. And there was a lot of, there were dark sides and there were light sides. It wasn't that the sex part was hidden, but it was always retold in the guise of this was this noble experiment that your that your ancestors tried in a more equitable way of sharing the world's abundance. We always have an image of what should be perfect and how love should be and how it you know we are wedded to the nuclear family sort of thing. Well, why <laughs> you know and so on and so what a utopia does is allow you to question. Because someone is saying, oh, it doesn't have to be that way. Let's see if we can't do it better. Nestled in this nearly textbook failed utopia story is the story of a community that, in some select ways, was way ahead of its time. Too ahead of its time. But then managed to somehow stay aligned together over the course of many decades and many iterations. After all... Paul Gebhardt, the senior vice president of design of Oneida Group, is also a descendant. The thing that you have in a community, especially a community like Oneida, is that that ultimate common purpose, right? that everyone is, is rowing in the same direction. I, I think about that a lot, and I think about the attributes they had as a community to help each other, which was, uh, I think, rather than being competitive, they were more constructive with each other. In the 1980s, half of the flatware in the U.S. was made by Oneida. But by 2006, Oneida Limited declared bankruptcy. It was acquired by hedge funds and then acquired by a private equity firm in 2011. But now it's back, again, this time as the Oneida Group. But the silverware is no longer made in Oneida, New York. And the silverware is no longer made with any silver. And it's usually stainless steel now? It's all stainless, yeah. But here's the cool thing. In all their different names and incarnations, they've kept their archives. We're 130-some years old, and we've lived through, you know, uh, Art Deco and Art Nouveau and, um, you know, the colonial design periods. And all, all, all of those things that, uh, that were popular for fashion and uh, interior design. Because of their incredible longevity, Oneida can cycle designs in and out of style 
and back in again, while still rounding out their offerings with a new handmade-looking artisan collection. Because that's what's in style now. Because of course, flatware has fashion. And it says something about us and the era we live in or the era we long for. I just didn't realize it. Well, yeah, it sounds like you need to go out and take a look at your own uh, assortment and maybe upgrade or maybe something vintage from, uh, maybe look at Patrician from 1914 on eBay. Uh, that's, that's, what I, that's what I collect. Oh, that's, thank yeah. you. That's great advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you look for it on eBay or happen upon it at a restaurant or a friend's house, you might find some little slivers of a utopia to accompany the increasingly rare treat of a meal on a lovingly set table. And in this way, John Humphrey Noyes was right. He was able to live forever. Next week. There was this idea for a perfect city. A city that would be the capital of an empire that stretched around the world. This was Hitler's vision for a redesigned Berlin in Nazi Germany. The full city was never realized, thank heavens, but some structures were built. And what do we do with the architecture left behind? How do we live with the remnants of a dark, destructive utopia? That's for next time. Thanks to the wonderful staff of the Oneida Community Mansion House for organizing our visit, and a special hat tip to docent Joe Valeski for giving us a tour. Additional thanks to Lawrence Foster, professor of American history at the Georgia Institute of Technology, for sharing his research on Oneida with us. Quotes from John Humphrey Noyes and Mary Cragen are from Religious Experience of John Humphrey Noyes, compiled by George Wallingford Noyes, and A Yankee Saint, John Humphrey Noyes and the Oneida Community, by Robert Allerton Parker. We found both sources through Ellen Whalen smiths book, Oneida, from Free Love Utopia to the Well-Set Table. Thanks to Connor Cheely, the voice of John Humphrey Noyes in this episode. And if you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. Nice Try's producer is Megan Kinane. She also voiced Mary Cragen for us this week. Our associate producer is Diana Buds. Our editors are Audrey Dilling and Lisa Pollock. Original music and sound design by Greg Pliska. Gautam Shrikashin is our engineer. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kroa and Kelsey Keith. Nice Try Utopian is a production of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Avery Truffleman, and utopias do not exist. <laughs>